Signs of Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School, University of Oxford, and Kantar, the marketing insights and consulting company. In each episode, we'll have a frank discussion with industry experts to help brands and business leaders navigate the changing landscape of marketing and hopefully dispel some myths and misconceptions. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Along the way. I'm Andrew Stephen, the L'Oreal Professor of Marketing and Associate Dean of Research at the Said Business School. I'm Tara Prabhakar, Global Director, Client Impact at Cantor. Today's podcast is all about growing businesses and what is really the best way to do this, what are some of the forces of change that are disrupting uh, the business world that we want to think about taking advantage of, uh, and we're very, very happy to have as our guest Mark deswan Ahrens. Mark is the founder of the Institute for Real Growth, uh, of which Kantar is a participant, and formerly he led for Kantar the, uh, the research and reports on Insights 2020 and Marketing 2020. Mark, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Co-founder. I did all that work with uh, my uh, partner, Frank van Andries, as well. So, Mark, tell us a little bit. Maybe start us off by talking a bit about IRG and uh, the Initiative for Real Growth. Well, um, you mentioned Marketing and Insights 2020. Those were both really focused on the role of the CMO and the role of the head of insights in an organization. What we found uh, that really uh, companies are now across disciplines uh, grappling with the big growth question and the Initiative for Real Growth, which was uh, the, the first initiative of the Institute for Real Growth, really uh, looked at how do companies that uh, drive overperformance in growth, how do they act differently, how do they think differently, how do they drive not temporary growth, not short-term growth, but sustained business growth. So that was really our focus uh, when we defined the scope of this initiative. And how did you get to the insight? Uh, let me give you a very quick uh, methodology uh, approach, if you like. What we did, and that's very similar to the previous studies, um, was that we, we reached out to growth leaders. Uh, so not just CMOs, but also CEOs, uh, CGOs, CCOs, and you, there's enough C's and O's there to confuse anybody. But basically, we talked to business growth leaders, and we talked uh, across 73 markets to over 550 growth leaders. And the value exchange was very clear. Give us one hour of your time in confidence. We'll never quote any specifics about your company. Uh, but if you give us that time, we promise to come back 
and teach you uh, about what we've learned in the aggregate. On top of that, we also did um, a quant survey, which has almost 2,000 participants uh, globally, and we did an AI analysis, uh, not just of all the transcripts of all the interviews, but also of everything that's been written by any reputable uh, source on business growth over the last five years. Uh, that was a really interesting exercise. But the, those those three were the main thrusts. And then just very recently, uh, we've been given uh, additional work by one of our partners, uh, LinkedIn, um, studying very closely one of the aspects that we identified quite early on, the connectedness of companies internally and externally. And LinkedIn did an analysis across three and a half million uh, users uh, to actually validate some of the things that we uh, found to be true. So Mark, it, it, we're talking about growth and, and you talked about sustained business growth. Uh, it might actually make sense to go back to basics and talk about exactly what we're growing here. So I think that's a incredibly important uh, topic you raised there because indeed in all the interviews we had, uh, the first 15 to 20 minutes were all about how did they define growth in their company. And we actually asked them to, um, to really talk about what were the metrics, what strategy in terms of uh, growth was defined, what did they talk about internally, what kind of rewards did they have linked to definitions of growth. And, and already there, this is uh, before the quant, these, we're talking about the core interviews, we saw quite significant differences. What we were looking for was sustained business growth. Uh, what we ended up in the quant uh, measuring is sustained top-line business growth. What we found is basically that everyone we talked to and everyone we surveyed is interested and measures top-line business growth. What was interesting in the quant was that indicatively overperformers actually thought much more broadly around growth and they talked about growth of the category that they were in or even growth beyond the category, the traditional definition of the category, whereas underperformers actually talked a little bit more about profit growth and market share growth. What we also found is that overperformers beyond the financial metrics had um, significant additional metrics around people growth. And in fact, one of the conclusions of our study is that overperformers humanize growth. We're talking about metrics that capture growth of the value that the organization delivers to the community. Of course, the growth that the organization delivers to its employees and to the clients it serves and to the colleagues. Um, so. People or humanized growth is really where we ended up as an indicative for overperformance. So what we found is that overperformers uh, define their markets in a far more abundant manner. Mm -hmm. We actually think that uh, a nice uh, rule of thumb would be to say, redefine your market is one of our recommendations in such a way that you do not have a market share that goes above 3%. That's actually a, a really fun exercise to do. How do I need to redefine my market in such a way? And I'll give you an example. One of the interviewees we talked to was uh, very active in hair care. And the organization, according to the normal market research panels that it measures and talks to retailers about, has about a 30% share in hair care. Uh, however, what they found was when they started their discussions with Amazon, that Amazon actually said, you don't have 30% market share. When we look at hair care, you only have about 11% market share. And what you know is happening there is Amazon is adding in hair dryers and hair curlers, all things which compete for the same dollars. 
in Herken. Uh, but really what's worth doing is then saying, okay, but let's go to the, uh, to the crowdsourcing sites where people uh, in their virtual garages are thinking of new concepts, new experiences to develop that also help hair care. And actually the market share quickly drops from 11 to 3%. When you're at 3%, suddenly the competitors that you have are very different, but also the opportunity to double that from three to six suddenly seems viable and the partners that you could be working with to actually achieve that become very exciting and new. So we think it's a it's a liberating and certainly a characteristic of growth over performance. Yeah. And you know when you move from 11 to 3%, your ability to service that 3% actually opens up considerably and you start thinking about things that are not about the lowest common denominator actually about servicing, customizing what you're doing for that 3%. So makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. At Oxford Said, we've been doing a lot of work around um, exactly the same sorts of concepts and, and thinking um, in one part of it around disruption, which we're finding a lot of our um, clients in executive education and, and our even our students and executive students are all sort of saying, we're worried about being disrupted. And we've sort of said, well, you know, you, you need to think about how to get out ahead of that. So, so what's your perspective on dealing with disruption around the topic of growth? Well, I think the term disruption is defensive. Um, if we're being disrupted, you are indeed, you're reactive, not proactive. Uh, so I, 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 I totally uh, agree with you. It's about getting ahead of it, which means, uh, one, to redefine your market in a far more abundant manner. Uh, but two, to think about the solutions you bring in a, um, a far more comprehensive manner. So we actually just recently had a, at one of the uh, client discussions we were having around IRG findings. Um, we, we said, look, uh, th there's products, there's information, there's services. What percentage, in fact, the CMO asked his team that, what percentage of our sales would you say are just product? And what percentage are some form of mixture of product and information and service? And, uh, and the honest truth was uh, about 70% was just product. I would make the case that if you're just selling product, you're being a lazy marketeer because there are very few products that don't need information around them. Information shows consumer intimacy. It allows for customization and services mean uh, offer the opportunity to then start um, partnering with other organizations. And again, there are very few categories where those additional uh, experiences don't add value. Um, now, whether they make financial sense, of course, is a secondary thing, but information can usually be provided quite cheaply. You talked about product information and services, and, and, and we live in an era of experience today. Um, so what's your point of view on delivering experiences as a way to grow? Well, we think it's uh, we, we think it's key. In fact, um, so we defined, and perhaps it's good to take a step back for a moment. When we looked at all the growth over performers, um, we were able to distinguish seven what we call building blocks of real growth. And with real, we mean sustained, and we mean humanized growth. And um, three were really about the what is it the organizations do different and offer differently. Three were about the how does the organization think and act differently, and one was really about the why does the organization do what it does every day of the week? On the what, uh, the first was really these abundant markets, defining the place that you operate in, the where to play in a far more holistic, need-based rather than functional category definition-based manner. That liberates the thinking. Uh, the second what's different 
about overperformance is that we see that they have embraced the having to work with multiple business models. Now, that's not something companies like doing. Um, I mean, as simple as a company like Unilever buying uh, far more smaller brands, uh, far less scale than they used to in the past, but they're seeing that they need to do that to fill out the portfolio to um, to, to really answer today's demand. Um, but actually, what I like as an example is the fact that in the same month, both Coke and Pepsi announced major business model changes. Coke buying uh, Costa retail, I mean, suddenly going into the retail business, no one would argue that that's the same as uh, bringing plastic bottles of soft drinks to your supermarket. Mm -hmm. And Pepsi uh, buying uh, a company which is really based on the subscription model, uh, but now allows them to use far less plastic, which of course is dramatically important, and to customize because you can mix and match with these flavors. Both were very significant purchases by these or acquisitions. Both were led by new leaders, a CGO at Coke, a new CEO at Pepsi. And, and it recognizes that you need, it, apparently you need these very senior personnel changes to get a company to agree to work in a different manner. We find that across the overperforming um, organizations, working with multiple business models, or as we call it, playing chess and checkers at the same time, is important. So to answer your question about experiences, uh, indeed, that is the third area where uh, we would say that what the companies do is different. So if the first was about the market and defining it in abundant ways, the second is about the acceptance that bi multiple business models need to be leveraged and, and accepted within the organization. And the third, we really steal with pride from Jeff Bezos. You know, he writes his letter now every year as, um, as Warren Buffett uh, does. Uh, and the Bezos letter is now almost as famous. He wrote two years ago that organizations, uh, he was speaking specifically to Amazon, but organizations need to accept the eternally dissatisfied customer. And I think that that acceptance is painful, it's um, tiring, but it is absolutely the guidance for the future. Just look at your own behavior. The moment um, my Spotify app has a new feature, it takes me two, three weeks before I'm using my British Airways app and I'm thinking, why don't they have the same feature? Consumers are transferring better experiences from one category to another immediately. So we will have to live with the forever beautifully dissatisfied consumer. So what can we do to respond to that? And it is indeed, I think, this mix of always finding services and information, basically making experiences around our products that add more value. And so I think that, um, you know, you have a factory that makes margarine or shampoo or car parts. That's not going to change very quickly. But you can always then start to partner in terms of services around that. How quickly does it get delivered? By whom? What else is there in the same mix? And the information. And, and I really do believe that uh, the, the new battle for market share will probably be for share of experience. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, 
like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Does it always have to be new person, new leader comes in and sort of disrupts their models and says, well, let's try this, let's try that. You know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about the counterpoint to that where there's a lot of inertia and it's seen as a very risky thing to kind of, you know, the ship is sailing along kind of nicely, but maybe not amazingly well, but it's stable. Um, and then to come in and say, you know what, let's change that. I, I can see how a new person coming in would feel like they have a mandate to do that. But what about the more established leader, C-suite, whatever level, um, who sort of feels that they want to try and take a chance. How, how, how do you enable that? Uh, we wouldn't argue that you need a senior personnel change to make this happen. I think it's just indicative for how difficult it is. What we're seeing leading organizations do is create safe spaces to allow these things to uh, be nurtured, be brought into the organization, be experimented with. Um, one of the three how qualities we see is um, is really that the organization becomes far more anticipative, far more agile. I, I, I think we all, as marketers or as consultants, uh, from time to time, we have to explain to our kids what we do, uh, and perhaps as senior leaders, and we say, well, there's this big ship that's moving along, and I'm trying to move it just one degree to the left or one degree to the right. And now I'm actually reversing my thinking on that. I don't think it's about moving oil tankers. I think the new analogy is a flock of birds, mm. which is moving fluidly, but quite flexibly in concert, but very, very much and fast changing direction. And in fact, to get really to the answer around organization, uh, this anticipative organization um, fights little mini battles, micro battles, and, and understands that we win the war by uh, equipping teams to fight this battle and that battle and then this um, disabling and disbanding teams and reconstituting them with different people that are needed for the, the next battle. Uh, but it is far more about the flock of birds in my mind now than the oil tanker. This notion of customers forming experiences completely outside of you know your control and certainly outside of your industry or whatever else, um, I think is a really important one and increasingly important uh, for companies to, to recognize uh, this sort of spillover of expectations is, is what I refer to it as. Mm. Um, but the, the challenge is if we just recognize that, it's like, oh, yeah, that's kind of obvious and good to think about it. But then what do you do about it? Because if, if I wanted to, again, get out ahead of that and try and anticipate these new expectations customers are getting from Spotify or Amazon or Uber or, you know, whatever, as a business, how would I think about where to look to identify these these sort of waves of expectations that are about to crash over me? So I think that's exactly right. Uh, and that's what every marketer in the world needs to be asking themselves now. I think it starts, again, with that um, defining the abundant market. But that's not enough. Um, I'd like to use McDonald's as an example. They um, 
they were basically seeing that people were delivering McDonald's products completely outside their control. And so they also saw that almost all competitors had some shape or form of um, delivery. And there were a lot of new food companies that were actually building a business model on delivery. And so they stepped back and said, we've, we, we've got to get into this. We need to master this. And now McDelivery is, um, is, a, is a real thing in, in most markets. So I, I think it, it's almost playing war games around against yourself. And, and it is around defining the market in terms of consumer needs, not technical uh, functionality. And then very quickly, uh, the combinations, if you're a good marketer, and this actually gets to a, a very important secondary point that we argue um, later in, um, we call it whole-brained solutions. Um, if you're a good marketer, you're whole-brained, and it means that you're overlaying data, which basically everyone has. We have infobesity. We did not speak to anyone that argued that they had too little data. Often they said that data was in the wrong place or not synchronized correctly with the decision-making process, but nevertheless, no one ever said they didn't have enough data. But if you don't overlay that with human insights, coming back again to humanized growth, if the marketer and the insights leaders in the organization aren't helping the company interpret that data to actually take it back to an understanding of human needs, then you're missing that hugely important first step to then say, now what else can we offer as an experience? How do we get ahead of these other players that are suddenly entering our, our traditional categories with completely new solutions. On the subject of whole brain growth, creativity is, is something that's becoming increasingly important as a competence um, to build for growth. Uh, what's your point of view on um, how organizations can do that yeah. to, to prepare themselves for growth? Well, I, I think you just um, hit the nail on the head. No one has a lack of data. Uh, technology, arguably, is a commodity. What we see is a growth over performance recognize that they need to overlay data with human insights and technology with human creativity. And really, if you don't match those two together, you've got a lot of things there that are interesting, but just worthless. So to your specific question around creativity, what we're seeing over performers do is move far more from a, a data uh, mastery. If you look at many of the new successful players, they are very, very good at understanding the data and analytics. A-B testing is how they built their businesses. But what we find is at some point they run out of the ideas. And it's very much uh, like the companies, and it's from a completely different route, but the zero-based budgeting um, and, and quite frankly the 3G debacle of the last few years, what they've done is they've grown profit. And now after two, three years, they're finding that they need new creative growth ideas. And by the way, they fired those people four years ago, so they're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing is that the A-B testing technology companies and the companies that have gutted their traditional marketing and innovation departments, they've run out of ideas and they don't have the creativity. Uh, on the other hand, looking at the other side of the spectrum, very creative companies like Adidas, for example, who, um, you know, if you think of their advertising and communications over the last few years, it's been beautiful and bold and creative, but they weren't good at interpreting the data. And now with their apps and all the first services and experiences they're creating, we're basically seeing the two sides of the spectrum coming to a place where you have to overlay data with insights 
and technology with creativity. So, Mark, probably the final building block uh, for growth um, in, in your study that we haven't talked about yet is, is open culture. This is one, in our, in our work, we actually, for each of the seven building uh, blocks, we, we also started the discussion with a, a myth, uh, a pervasive myth around the building blocks. And in this case, I would um, have cited myself on the side of the myth, which was that you can't change culture, that culture is like the DNA and you can't change it. Let me put it this way. I haven't been part of uh, many successful culture change organizations. Uh, that said, I've actually learned so much studying companies like Cisco and Microsoft where I do believe it's possible. And our insight now is that uh, leaders recognize, successful leaders recognize that they can rewrite the culture script. Uh, if you think about, you know, when you join a new company or new to you, um, very, very quickly, you know when you're supposed to, to take your lunch uh, or even go to the toilet for that matter and how long. Companies have these rules and they're very subtle ways of explaining how you need to behave. Um, when you look at a company like Microsoft, for example, and the enormous change it's undergone since Bill Gates, what is it, 15 years ago, and now uh, Sacha. This was a company that was completely obsessed by having the best technology. And now it's all about customer satisfaction. I have it from good source that the all the people in sales and business development there, they don't get bonuses unless their clients actually grow because of the products and services that they've sold, even if those numbers are up. And um, the, the orientation and culture change just couldn't be bigger. So we did look uh, extensively into the um, uh, cultures of overperformers. And what we see, one, is that indeed, they're far more open in the sense that externally, they're far more connected. The new LinkedIn data, and I can't exactly give you the numbers yet, but we see that by a factor five, the people inside the company are connected with the outside world versus underperforming organizations. A massive difference. Um, and, but also just, you know, these, these collaborations with the outside world are necessary. Also the collaboration internally between marketing and sales specifically was measured by us and is by more than a factor two better among overperformance than underperformers. Uh, but we also see, for example, that diversity, which obviously we're all thinking about and looking at, we decided to ask the question of the dis diversity, not just within the organization, but at the senior strategic decision-making level. And we see that their diversity correlates highly with growth over performance. We've talked about growth in terms of you know marketing and sales and what they have to do. Uh, what about the other parts of the business? Um, I'm assuming that um, functions like finance and HR have to also develop a growth mindset if the organization has to pull in the same direction. Uh, so we didn't specifically study how they need to change, but what we did look at is how the marketing leader or the growth leader needs to engage with those other functions. And um, the honest truth, and perhaps that's worth talking a little bit about, uh, is the role of the CMO has changed dramatically over the last uh, decade, perhaps 20 years. The truth is that 20 years ago, there were about a third as many CMOs as there are now. And what's happened over time is that a lot of people that probably had the title of heads of communication, and those companies just didn't have marketing departments because they had great products or great technology, they have over the years somehow been named CMOs. So the number of CMOs has exploded. A lot of those people 
don't actually have a lot of marketing experience. They have a lot of communication experience. And what we're arguing uh, with the Institute for Real Growth is that if marketers don't want to be um, part of a situation where suddenly the company like Coke appoints a chief growth officer and not a chief marketing officer, uh, then those marketers need to own not just the how to win, which is all around how to win in digital, and a lot has happened there, and a lot has had to be learned, new metrics, new partners. So there was a good reason to be focused on that, but it, not enough of a reason to be distracted from the key question of where do we actually play? How do we create the market as in marketing? And what we're finding now is that really the balls come full circle. And although digital and experience marketing are all still very important, then they are now, if you like, showing the way back to, but actually for what reason? What do we want to offer our consumers as solutions? Which is the question of what market are we in? That then goes to who do you collaborate with? And it will drive significantly more intense collaboration within the organization, with other functions, but also with new partners. And so that brings the open culture and the organization back together, if you like. You've been listening to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School and Kantar. Find more episodes and related content at uk.kantar.com or at sbs.oxford.edu. Thank you.